The views and opinions expressed in this podcast are simply that, opinions. All are presumed innocent until proven otherwise in a court of law. Sensitive topics are discussed. Discretion is advised. On this week's Court TV podcast, we'll take you into the courtroom for Kentucky versus Christian Kit Martin, the former airline pilot and U.S. Army major accused in the deaths of three neighbors. Martin claims he had nothing to do with it and has suggested that the bigamist woman he thought he was married to may have set him up. Court TV's Ted Rollins joins me to go over all of the evidence that we've heard so far. This is the Court TV Podcast with Vinnie Politan. Welcome to the Court TV Podcast. I'm Vinnie Politan. Thank you so much for downloading and listening. And in this podcast, we're going to talk about a case that for me in my career at Court TV, I've never had one quite like this. It's extremely confusing. I'm trying to figure out what happened what it means. There's so much conflicting evidence in this case. And it's one where uh, I am not sure what really happened. And, and it's, it, it, this is unusual, folks. You know, I watch trials, and, and a lot of times there's a, there's a narrative, there's a story, and, you know, each side has their own take on all of it, but I kind of figure out in my mind what I believe happened. I'm having an extreme difficult time doing it in this case. Let me give you the background. Kit Martin is a man who was in the military and then became an airline pilot for American Airlines. He's accused of triple murder. The victims are his neighbors. The alleged motive involved a court-martial. There was a court-martial that was scheduled. The key witness against him was one of his neighbors. Kit Martin is the defendant. His neighbor is Cal Phillips, who is supposed to testify against him at the court-martial. Cal Phillips ends up dead, as does his wife and their neighbor, Ed Danzaro. So you've got three people killed two weeks before a court-martial. Prosecutors say that is the motive. Kit Martin murdered this man because he was going to testify against him. Now, flash forward as we get ready for this trial, the, the, the big twist in the case is that Kit Martin not only is claiming that he's innocent, but he and his defense team pointing the finger at his ex-wife, Joan Harmon, who um, became a huge character in this case, uh, although she never stepped foot inside the courtroom. Now, we are recording this as the jury is deliberating, so we're doing this without knowing what the jury is going to say. Let me bring in my colleague and friend, Ted Rollins, Court TV anchor. Uh, uh, Ted, l- let me get your big-picture take before we start uh, getting into the facts of this case. Um, have you ever seen anything quite like this play out inside a courtroom? No, oh, and in, because of that, I think this jury has to come back not guilty because what happened we we just don't know what happened it's it's uh, a fascinating case yes the, the narrative of mr military army ranger rambo could pull off this murder um yeah it's intriguing but on the other side it's mr family man was at home with his fiance and her children and there's no way he would have done it he's got a he's a wonderful person you can uh, i buy both of them so i say you have to say not guilty even if you think he might have done it. 
Well, here's the here's the, the the other twist in the case is that the defendant took the stand. Kit Martin testified in his own defense. And this is a case where many people thought, well, maybe he doesn't even have to because the evidence is sort of thin against him. But he did take the stand and tell his story. And, and I want to begin by playing for you really what is the theme of the defense case here and what became this whole battle inside the courtroom, which is between Kit Martin and his ex, Joan Harmon. Take a listen. Went upstairs, finally, finally got past her, went upstairs, and she followed me up there. And I didn't know it, but Kenzie had come up too. And then she started yelling at me some more. And I was like, finally I got to the point, I was like, look, I'm, I'm, you know, I talked to you about this before, I'm done. Like, I want a divorce. And How did she react to that? She acted violently. Uh, and she told me straight up, she's like, first thing came out of her mouth, she's like, if you divorce me, I'll ruin your life. I'll ruin your career. I know how to do it. And then she started listening out to us. She's gonna say, I'll say you're abusive. And, so, and then I like, cut her off and I was like, look, I don't know what you're trying to do, but if you think you're being abused, you should call the police. And then uh, I was like, you know what? I'll go call the police. Now, this is where it all starts, right? He asked for a divorce, and all of a sudden, she now is, is going to uh, ruin his life. Uh, she is going to destroy him. She knows how to do it. So she becomes the villain. She becomes the boogeyman for the defense. Uh, the only problem with all of this, Ted, from my perspective, is that as he's testifying... I don't like this guy. I don't like, he's rubbing me the wrong way. He's, he's selling things that I'm not buying. I'm not saying that there's, that the evidence is overwhelming against him, but once he took the stand and he started talking, I'm like, I wouldn't trust this guy with anything. Yeah. I understand what you're saying. He has that. Um, he's very arrogant and he's trying to pretend to the jury that he is just pristine, um, which he's not. I mean, he, was involved with Joan Harmon for many years. They are uh, a lot of ways, uh, probably a lot alike. But Joan Harmon did start this off, right? Because as soon as that happens, as soon as the divorce hits, she goes to the military and tries to turn him in on several very serious charges that at the end of the day turn into some minor, you know, some misdemeanors he serves 90 days for. But that was the spark of this whole thing. So she is a character that absolutely needs to be considered in front of this jury. I agree with you uh, on some level, Vinny, that he's um, one of these individuals. The more he talks, the more you dislike him and maybe distrust him. Um, whether or not the jury felt the same thing, hard to say. Yeah, I feel like he was a little bit too much of a fast talker, uh, adding a lot of facts, little comments here and there, and it may be part of his personality, but at the end of the day, um, as he's testifying, I'm not liking him. I'm not trusting him and I'm not necessarily believing everything he says, but that's not enough to convict someone <laughs> for prosecutors. You still have to prove the case. And one big piece of evidence in this case is at the scene of the murders, they found his dog tags. Now investigators didn't necessarily find it, but the victim's family found the defendant's dog tag. So why would the defendant's dog tags be at the scene of the crime? It's his neighbor's house across the street. Why would his dog tags be there in that house? Take a listen to uh, Kit Martin taking a look at those dog tags on the witness stand. Are those your dog tags? No, sir. They do not appear to be my dog tags at all. All right. Over the years, how many sets of dog tags have you had? 
Uh, I, I couldn't say for sure. 30 years is a long time. Um, quite a few. Do you know where all of the different uh, dog tags you've had over those years, do you know where they are? No, I mean, I can't say for sure. Most of them probably in my rubber made up in my attic, but uh, I know I gave a few to my kids. Uh, you know, they wanted some, so I gave some to my, my kids. Do you ever gift any to your significant others? No. No. I would never do that. And that actually would have helped him, right? That Ted, if he had gifted to his to his significant others, then uh, then the defense could claim, well, then Joan Harmon, his ex, got the dog tags and planted them at the scene of the crime. Oh, absolutely, yeah. That was an interesting um, response. I expected him to say, yes, absolutely. My ladies love my dog tags. Um, but he didn't, and possible missed opportunity. But all, all in all, my feeling on the dog tags is talk about confusing. It doesn't make any sense for the state to bring the dog tags in as a viable bit of evidence because the scenario is, okay, Rambo goes over there. He's got this well-executed plan. He's Mr. Military and he leaves his dog tags and he's, and he's wearing his dog tags. Hey, what? It doesn't make any sense. Those dog tags were not something that the killer had on his possession so I believe that there is a, uh, either they were either planted or they were there because his ex-wife and the murder victim were working together to help move her, her out after the divorce. They were connected. They moved all of the stuff out. That's got to be the origin of these dog tags. It just doesn't make any sense. It doesn't make any sense. And, and prosecutors trying to use those dog tags like a like a fingerprint or DNA evidence that's left at the scene. And and to me, it doesn't have the same impact. It's 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 really bizarre. It's part of the confusion that I'm dealing with here, Ted. And why are these dog tags in the house? Why weren't they found by investigators? Why are they found by the victim's family? And, and why are they on some shelf in the house? To me, that's not something the killer would do. So I, I discounted the dog tags myself because I just can't figure it out. That's one of those things I can't figure out. Now, next, this is to me the most incriminating little factoid in the case. And, and Kit Martin had to explain it. There's evidence that he... At around 1130 at night, this is the night of the murders, okay? And the, and the prosecution theory is that the murders take place at the house and then the bodies are moved in the early morning hours. Uh, two of the bodies are moved to a field a couple miles away and are then uh, burnt in a car. So they're not found at, at the home. One body, Cal Phillips, is found at the home, but his wife and his neighbor are found in a car a couple miles away, burnt. In the early morning hours is the allegation. And there's evidence that this defendant at 1130 at night is setting his phone alarm for 1.10 a.m. Who sleeps for like an hour before setting their alarm? Who sets their alarm for 1.10? I need an explanation. Here's Kit's explanation. With a kerosene heater, you need to keep the, the wick wet. You can't let it, let it dry out. Why not? Uh, I, I don't know. It's been a long time since so I had to use one, but I remember that was bad. It was bad in that. That's why I think I screwed up my old kerosene here. So you had to keep it. You had to keep some kerosene in the reservoir. And then I was, a, like I said, I think it was the first night I was running a new new heater. So I was a little concerned about it. And so I usually set my alarm November through March and during the night to go check out at least once to 
refill it and check the, you know, check, make sure everything was going right. Um, okay. So uh, this is what I do. I set my alarm for one ten every night. Okay. Is there a big difference, Ted? Uh, are you a kerosene wick guy? Do you know about this? Um, is, is, is there going to be a big difference between 1130 and one o'clock in the morning? Really? Like maybe you would check it at three in the morning or four in the morning. Can't you just check it before you go to sleep? If you're going to bed that late, Ted Rollins? Well, I don't have a kerosene heater, but every now and then things happen at a house, you know, and you're checking on them, whether it's a a sprinkler system or um, what have you could be anything the heater has worked and it's not working so you don't sleep you, you kind of i understand that the other thing that i did is more, more difficult for me to believe is that he's got three dead bodies over next door and he decides hey, i don't know i'm just gonna take a quick nap here before i go deal with those bodies i mean come on you're reading it wrong ted you're reading it wrong it, it's not to wake him up it's to wake him up in case he falls asleep okay it's not like i'm going to take a nap and then move the bodies it's like i've got to stay awake but i want to make sure that i don't fall asleep so i'm going to set this alarm now here's the problem with the with the alarm at one o'clock if he's got to if he's got to check it in an hour to make sure then the alarm should be set for 2 30 in the morning four o'clock in the morning 5 30 in the morning if he's got to keep checking that wick um, then he's got to check it every hour and a half. That's why I'm not buying his wick. He's selling me something I'm not buying, Ted. That's a lie. That is an absolute lie right there. Oh, it was my first night I had the kerosene there, so I had to I had to check it. Uh, yeah, I want to make sure. Yeah, because it's an old house. Yeah, yeah. We got well, fun- let's say he's telling the truth about the uh, kerosene heater, and this is, this is the issue that I do have with this story. Why didn't they, the defense, go out and validate that this heater was purchased a day before, blah, blah, blah. They don't have that evidence. We didn't see that evidence. So that, you know, that, that, that's hard to take because that's so easy, one would think, to validate. And if that was the truth, then absolutely, it does make sense to me that new kerosene heater, I don't want to start the house on fire, so I'm, I'm nervous about it. I am going to check. Uh, oh, and, I'm, and I'm nervous. So that makes sense to me. But with no validation and yes just i understand why you don't buy right and and here's the other thing if he's so worried about being cold at night why is he sleeping as a naked pretzel uh with his fiance which was the actual testimony in the case i will spare you folks you don't have to hear it from him uh but he's testifying that he's sleeping naked and 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 by the way he's not naked at 11 30 when he's seen on on the video right outside his house yeah the when he took the stand, he did two things, and they annoyed you, I know. Um, he answered the questions, but then he kept talking, and he kept, and he brought in details in his personal life that he thought would make jurors connect with him. And one of the themes throughout was this beautiful relationship that he had with his fiance. And uh, you know, it, it's nice that they're in love, but he takes it to this level of extraordinary weirdness and this naked pretzel story um it's you know basically what he told the jury was that he and his fiance like to embrace each other in the nude and converse for as he put it hours and hours at a time um it was it was a very talk about strange moments in court tv history the naked pretzel will go down along with others. Ted, are you one of those guys who puts uh, a mustard on your pretzels? <laughs> not anymore. I'm not I'm never having a pretzel <laughs> not, for the rest of my life. Not anymore. 
And, and, and you know what? He may very well be in love. He may have finally found the, the, the correct woman, uh, Laura, and, and he testified about it. And that was the one time that he got emotional on the stand. Let's listen. And who is Laura to you? Laura is... Uh... <laughs> I, call her, I call her my son. She's, she's the uh, son of my solar system, is what I call her. She brings, I tell her that all the time. She brings light and warmth to my, to my world. That's, that's what I tell her. I named it. I had my sister name a star after her for, for her birthday this year because she's my star. <laughs> Ted, I can't take it seriously. To me, it, it, sounds, it sounds rehearsed. It absolutely, and he may love her, and she—I'm sure she loves him. She's in the courtroom. She supported him on the stand, everything else. But I think he thinks he's the smartest man in the room, and he's had 768 days in jail, as he told the jury, uh, to prepare for this moment. And to me, it sounded like uh, you know he kind of scripted out the way he was going to do this, kind of like they do in a reality show. Yeah, and I think the reason he broke down talking about his fiance. Um, Laura was because she stuck by him over this period of time. And um, that, (laughs) you know, he had, that's the first win he has, because if you believe that he did it, you have to believe that either Laura Spencer is the soundest sleeper on the face of this earth, or she is an accomplice. And I don't believe the accomplice after watching her on the stand, I just can't see it. So, um, there's something weird going on there. I agree with you. Um, I will say this. Grace Wong, our fantastic producer, was in the courtroom during all of this and said that that testimony moved everybody. And um, except for, I'm sure, the victim's families. But it was effective. It didn't move me. Uh, again, because, well, I'm not in the courtroom for the, for the actual moment. Okay, that's one reason. But two, it just, it sounded like a lot of the, the rest of his testimony, like he had like some prepared lines, like the whole thing about being in, he tells the jury, I've been in here for 768 days, five and a half hours or whatever. I mean, all of that, that's not spontaneous. I mean, it, it's prepared and you're allowed to prepare, right? I, I get it. And if you're wrong, and here's the other part of it, you know, if you are wrongfully accused of a crime, that may account for part of his attitude as well. He may, there may be a level of anger there that uh, I've been locked up all this time for something I didn't do. And I've been framed by someone. I I get that. That's very possible. Um, And speaking of being framed when we come back, because I think for this jury, uh, as they deliberate, and again, we're recording this as they're deliberating. We don't know what the results uh, are at this point. Um, as they're delivering, I think they have to think about not only the evidence against Kit, but what the defense did in, in pointing the finger throughout the prosecution case and their own case, pointing the finger at Kit's ex, Joan Harmon. And when we come back, we'll look at the evidence and the insinuations against her. Renowned journalist Ashley Banfield takes you behind the scenes of the most compelling cases in history. This is the new chapter in true crime. Judgment with Ashley Banfield. All new episodes Sunday nights at 8 on Court TV. I don't know if the court's been aware, but Ms. Harmon was, um, was charged with bigamy. Um, 
the basis for that charge was brought to the uh, county commonwealth attorney's office based on an investigation conducted by mr martin and mr martin's family um, i suspect that regardless of what happens after today we're not going to be done with this case. Ms. Harmon is not gonna be done with this case. This is going to unfortunately haunt her until, until she probably passes. Um, because whether Mr. Martin is convicted, I don't think even after a, an appeal that's upheld or an 1142 that's upheld, I don't think this is the end of this case. Um, and unfortunately she, if you allow her or order her to testify, um, whatever she says is going to be scrutinized going forward. Joan Harmon, the woman who, who Kit Martin had this nasty, nasty breakup with, he was married to her, the one that, that the defense is pointing the finger at as the, as the killer, the one who framed him, who tried to ruin Kit uh, by doing all of this, took the fifth. She took the fifth, did not testify. And, and this is very troubling for me. I'm a, I'm a prosecutor. Um, I always want the truth to come out in court. And now all of a sudden, I've got even more questions, Ted, because Joan Harmon takes the fifth. So now the, the person who we've heard so much about will never step foot, never did step foot inside the courtroom. Jury didn't get to hear from her. Um, I think it's actually helpful to the, the defense that the, the so-called real killer never came in the courtroom because now she's just painted as this evil, um, animal, uh, torturing, horrible woman. And, and that may be the picture some of these jurors have, Ted. I totally agree with you. The idea of someone else doing it is person that you can use your imagination to create as a juror is more effective than that actual person walking in. Because at the end of the day, if she comes into court and testifies over an extended period of time, jurors are likely going to think, this lady could never have told the triple murder off and gotten away with it. Rambo over there, on the other hand, becomes more of uh, the likely suspect, right? The, the person that likely did this because he's got the training and all of the rest of it. I don't know what Joan Harmon would have done in that courtroom, but I cannot believe she would come in and then leave and people think, oh yeah, oh, she's got, she, she probably did it with, uh, you know, with that old Joan Harmonism. Just being evil doesn't make you a triple murderer. Now I've seen a few pictures of her and uh, one of the pictures to, to describe it for folks who, who are listening, she kind of looks like the fourth angel from the original Charlie's Angels. Not the reboot movies, but the TV series on ABC uh, back in the late 70s. She looks like perhaps the fourth or fifth angel coming in. I mean, that's the way I would describe her. She's a nice looking woman. She, and she's got that kind, of, that kind of look with the feathered hair, the blonde hair, feathered back. And, and, you, and I look at that picture. I'm like, could she murder three people? Here's the part, Ted, that, that, that I'm having a hard time uh, buying that the defense is selling is that Joan Harmon committed triple murder to frame him so he'd have to go through this trial, okay? Number one, it would be easier just to kill him. But number two, from Kit Martin's own testimony, from his mouth, he's the one who testified that Joan said she was going to ruin his life and she knew how to do it, and she was the one who got that court-martial started against him, okay? So... 
it, it, it's because of her actions. She's the mastermind of, of uh, orchestrating this court-martial against him. And the key witness in that court-martial is Cal Phillips. So if her um, motive is to ruin his life with this court-martial, why would she, why would she, Joan Harmon, murder the key witness in that court-martial? Why would she do that? That's ridiculous, Ted. That's ridiculous. Makes no sense. I'm not buying it. That's the problem with the alternative theory. Nine times out of ten, the alternative theories are ridiculous when compared to the defendant being responsible. And I, that is where, um, the, during the closing arguments, I think the defense went a little bit off tangent, trying to prove on some level that Joan Harmon did this. They should have stuck to they didn't prove the case because I agree with you. The idea that Joan Harlan and her latest boyfriend concocted this scheme in the end game was to put Kit Martin away, but then whack three people just to do it and put themselves in such jeopardy. It doesn't make any sense. Right. To me, the revenge was the court martial. Cal Phillips was the key to the prosecution in the court martial. He's murdered before the court martial. Why would she do it? Then she's undermining her own plan. Like it's such a diabolical plan that it's like this, this, it makes no sense. It's way too complicated for a frame job. Wow. Anyhow, but that's what they're going with. Now, for every yin, there's a yang in this case, right? For every fact that goes one way, it says, well, no, this is ridiculous. Then you look at something and say, how do we explain it? And, and for Joan Harmon, one of the other victims is, is, is Pam Phillips, Cal Phillips' wife, okay? And who has her cell phone, right? This, this, this is, this is mind-boggling. Take a listen to the testimony because at the end of the day, the cell phone of one of the murder victims ends up in the hands of not the defendant, but Joan Harmon. In December of 2015, you... Um <clears throat> you learned that uh, the AT&T store on Fort Campbell Boulevard in Hopkinsville had come into possession of Pam Phillips' cell phone. Is that right? That's correct, sir. Uh, did you get a call from an AT&T employee? No, sir. Good dispatch? Yes, sir. Okay. And did you respond to the AT&T store? I did, sir. Okay. And I believe your report indicates you watched video. Uh, the, the store itself had surveillance video. I did, sir. And you watched that video, and it was clear that Joan Harmon was the person who brought this phone in. It appeared that way, yes, sir. Okay. Why would she have it? Now, here's the, the, the part of this that I think makes it even worse, Ted, is that Pam Phillips, there was testimony from um, Pam Phillips' uh, neighbor, Marlene LaRock, that she was on the phone with Pam Phillips when Pam Phillips screams and we're all interpreting this the scream as the moment that she must have seen a dead body or is confronted by someone who has a gun and it's just before she's murdered so if pam phillips is on the phone screams the phone goes silent she's never seen alive again and joan Harmon is the one who ends up with her phone how does that happen ted there's no innocent explanation for that, for, for Joan Harmon. Unless, and, and the, the, the story was that she found it or someone in her family found it in her yard. Um, so Where's her yard? Where's her yard? And why would it be in her yard? Because the defendant took the phone, hid it for a while, and then at the proper time, with his Ramboness, went over to Jones and threw it in her yard to try to set her up. 
See, this is the problem with this case. Oh, it's a, it's a, oh my goodness. It has to be a not guilty, Vinny, because we don't know what happened. So you can't put someone away for life when you don't know what happened. So, so the prosecution has to argue that the defendant is attempting to frame Joan while the defense is arguing that Joan is attempting to frame him. Yeah, it does. This, it does. Is, this, is, this, <laughs> this is insane. Insane. Oh, there is another twist, by the way. And I don't know if, if the jury fully got it. And, and we ended up with more information than the jury did in this case. Um, and, and one of those facts involves the relationship between Joan Harmon and Cal Phillips. Okay. Let's take a listen uh, to to the cross-examination of Marlene LaRock, that same neighbor who was on the phone with Pam Phillips uh, right at, at the moment she screams and then her phone goes silent and is never seen alive again. Um, here, the defense is cross-examining her uh, about the relationship between Cal Phillips and Joan Harmon. Ms. LaRock, you said you know, you know everything going on in Pembroke. <laughs> a lot of it, not all of it. Sure. If it has to do dogs, maybe. But uh, do you know Joan Harmon? I have met Joan Harmon, yes. And you were, or you were aware that um, she had a friendship with? Cal, yes. Is it fair to say that you thought that that was uh, an unhealthy friendship? Objection. The jury's got to understand what he's saying, right? And because the the allegation is is that Joan Harmon is having an affair with Cal Phillips, and, and the, the, if the jury is taking that away from that exchange, how does that play into all of this? That she perhaps is having some sort of a an affair with Cal Phillips, and and. Would that make her more likely or less likely to murder him? No, more likely. Because when there's love involved, then that's when bodies start dropping. There's, if indeed they were having some sort of an affair, then Joan Harmon goes up the list even higher as a possible suspect because now she does have motive that makes more sense. The motive of trying to frame Kit Martin, and that's why she kills... Cal Phillips, eh, that doesn't fly like we talked about. But if Joan Harmon and Cal Phillips had a relationship and it went sour, then now we're getting somewhere in terms of a potential motive. Okay. I I think you're right. I think you're right because the emotion gets into the equation. So is it, it, you know, does, I don't know. I don't know why I'm I'm trying to figure out this, this theory and, and, and again, it's a defense theory, so it's, you know, it is what it is. And sometimes it doesn't make 100% of sense. But that's, a, that's I think, it's another fact that confuses me. This is why I am where I am in this case, folks. Finally, let's take a listen to a little bit more of Kit Martin talking about Joan Harmon. Because you, you may have heard on the way in, and we kind of, we brushed over it. She's a bigamist, too. And the jury knows it. She was married when she married Kit, she never got divorced from her prior husband. And, and Kit Martin explained to this jury what Joan was saying about her prior husband, who I guess was her current husband because they never got divorced. Let's listen. As time progressed, um, I started catching her and like changing her stories about things. Like she told me a lot of stories over the years 
and there's some real, you know, ones you just don't forget. And, and I started catching her, changing those stories on me. Like what? Well, like the big one was the one that really floored me when they was, she had told me when I first met her and the kids were there, she's like, uh, my son's father got killed in a logging accident before he was born. He got decapitated. Um, the, the, whatever you call it, it picks up the logs, turned and took his head off. And I was like, what, you know? And her son repeated the story. He was little, he was like seven, maybe eight. And he told me the story too. He's like, yeah, my dad's dead. And, and you know, I felt really bad for him. And um, she told me that, you know, that was before he was born. And then one day we were, I was making dinner or something and she's like, made a comment about his dad. And she's like, yeah, well, he was always trying to come around after he was born and see him and stuff. And I wouldn't let him. And I was like, what? Wait a minute. I was like, you said he was dead before he was born. And she's like, no, I never said that. I was like, you told everybody that. You told me, EJ. Everybody. And she's like, she just kind of freeze when she got caught in line. She just kind of stare at you. Like, you know, I don't know, this was weird. Now now he's got Joan Harmon sounding like uh, Casey Anthony. You know, the, the, the person who can't tell the truth about anything. So to, to me, Ted, the, the big takeaway is um, Kit and Joan, I think, were, were made for each other <laughs> in some sense. I think they were much more alike than they were different. And maybe that's what caused the friction in their in their lives because they both seem to talk too much and and say too much and think too much, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. And that may have been what uh, imploded in their relationship. But at the end of the day, um, do you think the jury thinks it's it, it could be a a reasonable explanation for what happened here? Because I always used to tell juries when I was a prosecutor, reasonable doubt, ladies and gentlemen, and then I'd go through all the other scenarios that the defense had sort of tossed out there during the trial. And I say, does that sound reasonable? Is that a reasonable explanation? So is, is Joan a reasonable explanation to, to what happened here, Ted? Yeah, I do. I think she is. And here's why, because of not only the bigamy and the stories about Kit, but there were other stories um, that came in that weren't out of the mouth of Kit Martin. Specifically the one that gave me pause was, the boss at the soda shop where Joan Harmon's boss, this is a tiny town. Rumor is coming. The, the, the word is about the, the word. The word is spread about the murders. The boss takes the stand and says, Joan Harmon came to work and said, hey, did you hear about the murders? And testified that she had a gleam in her eye. And over the next few days was talking so much about the murders in such a, as she put it, because she couldn't go into the details, so inappropriately that she called police and i just think there's enough there for people to say joan Harmon is live yeah there's something wrong that's why it's got to be a not guilty well we shall see and again folks i'll remind you we're recording all this while the jury's deliberating so we have no idea what the outcome is um my, my you know my gut tells me uh, ted may very well be right uh at the end of the day i never know what 12 people are going to do inside the room and and we shall see. We shall see. Ted Rollins, Court TV anchor. Thank you so much. Thanks, Vinny. Uh, I appreciate uh, your insight and your time. It's very valuable. He's a busy guy, folks. All right. When we come back, um, I, I I'm going to give you my final take on this. Uh, and again, my take before the jury comes back, so it's not tainted by what they have said. But I'll give you my final take on on the most confusing case in my entire Court TV career. For more Court TV, watch it on cable, over the air, Roku, or go to CourtTV.com and stream live gavel-to-gavel coverage.
Catch up on the big moments from our current cases and relive some of Court TV's most historic trials. Court TV, your front row seat to justice. I always say this, folks, a trial is a search for the truth. I'm a former prosecutor. That was my job as a prosecutor, to seek justice, which is the truth. And um, I get accused many times of being so pro-prosecution in all these cases and all these trials. Uh, no, I am pro the truth, okay? And, and sometimes I see cases, and most of the time I see cases where the prosecution is seeking the truth and their allegations uh, to me have the ring of truth and they prove it to me beyond a reasonable doubt. This case, I am still searching for the truth and, and that's why I'm very, very uncomfortable here. Um, there's a difference between being not guilty and innocent and, and that, that could be where we end up in this case because we've got um, competing stories here, you know, Kit Martin, Joan Harmon, Who's more likely? I, I think Kit Martin much more likely as a killer. But there are the facts that we've gone through here that really bother me about Joan. But what bothers me the most is I don't have the full, I don't have a full story. I don't have I don't have a a vision in my mind as to what happened here. I, I don't I don't get it. And and prosecutors, you know, talked a lot about motive. Motive is great, but motive is not an element of a crime. Uh, motive doesn't tell you what happened, how it happened. Uh, it just explains why. And yeah, there's, there's an absolute reason for Kit Martin to want to kill Cal Phillips. And if in fact, Pam Phillips and Ed Danzaro, the neighbor and the wife walked in on a crime scene and he was there, uh, then I could see how they would end up being victims as well. Not, uh, uh, initially intended victims, but victims who walked in on a crime scene. I, I understand that. Uh, but this is unusual for me, you know, to be in this position. And I just feel like listening to the testimony and being limited, you know, some of the witnesses who did not testify, like Joan Harmon, is that there is this defense theory, there's this prosecution theory, neither of which is very precise or specific. And then there is the actual truth, which is an untold story. And personally, as a prosecutor, if I was going into a courtroom with an untold story and a story that I could not fill in the blanks, I'd be very uncomfortable because as a prosecutor, I always wanted to be convinced myself. First of all, I felt ethically beyond a reasonable doubt. I must be convinced about what happened and who is responsible and that I can prove that in a courtroom. Okay. I need all of those before I go inside a courtroom and start arguing to a jury. You know, that to me, ethically, that's what you have to do as a prosecutor. Now, in this case, prosecutors had had problems. They they presented this case to a grand jury and a big piece of the of the evidence was some cell phone records of Kit Martin that put him at the scene of the crime. And it was done by the FBI. And then upon further review, that evidence was no good. There was a problem with it. It was misinterpreted. It was wrong. It was inaccurate. And that part of the case disappeared and prosecutors did not pivot. They did not adjust to it. And I think that's why they are in the position that they're in in this case with a story that is very vague and, and you can't tie all the pieces together. And, and when things are, are cloudy and gray, 
Um, I have a problem. And oftentimes, it, you know, the defense in their case, they try to create this this fog or this gray area or as they sometimes say, muddy the waters. But they're not the ones doing it here. It was muddied already before the defense even put on a witness and did any cross-examination. It was muddied in the opening statement of the prosecution, you know, saying that he's he, there's other people who could be involved, but we don't know who they are. And we don't know who actually killed these three people. And, and there's two different weapons that are used. It's all very, very confusing. There's an untold story here. There'll probably be this incredible podcast whether it's next year or five years from now, that digs into this and, and, and maybe figures it all out. Because it, to, to me, it didn't all come out inside a courtroom. And it needs to. That's where it needs to come out. And when it doesn't, uh, it, it's very problematic. Now, I'm not on the jury, and, and I'm grateful I'm not on this jury, uh, because I'd have a hard time one way or the other. But I, I can't. I am not convinced as I sit here beyond any and all reasonable doubt as to exactly what happened. I I feel like Kit Martin is involved. My gut tells me he's involved. But how and why with whom? I don't know. I don't know. And that's the, the prosecution's job is to put this together. And you don't put it together, you fall short. And our system is is built on on this premise. And, and it's a tough premise to swallow sometimes is that guilty people need to be set free before one innocent person is locked up. And, and we know it has happened. Innocent people have been locked up, but that's the complete worst case scenario failure of our system, which is the best in the world. And when our system is built that way, prosecutors have to bring the goods. And I don't know if they brought them in this one. Now, If there's a verdict and there'll be some sort of conclusion, sometimes it's a hung jury, whatever it is. And if it if 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 it has happened at the time you're listening to this, go to our show notes, first of all, for more background on the trial and story, but also for the verdict, for the conclusion, go to the show notes and and click on there and you'll see exactly what happened, because I'm fascinated. I don't know how this thing's going to turn out. Not that I ever do, but sometimes you're a little confident one way or the other here. Ah. It's tough to lean that a jury's going to come back not guilty because they rarely do. But this could be one of those cases, folks. Anyhow, thank you so much for listening to the podcast and downloading. I am Vinny Politan. You can watch me every night from 8 to 11 on Court TV. It's a television network. We bring you gavel-to-gavel coverage of all these incredible trials across the nation. Um, if you have a digital antenna, rescan it so you can make sure you can find our signal. You can also go on CourtTV.com and, and click on it, put your zip code in, you can figure out how to watch it in, in your area as well. Again, please check the show notes and check us out next week. I'm Vinny Politan. Thanks for listening. And as always, don't forget to hug the kids. This podcast is a production of Court TV. Go to CourtTV.com for more content, trials on demand, and to find out how to watch Court TV in your area.